CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is sponsored by Roofstock on Chain. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. You might have thought the news cycle around the implosion of crypto exchange FTX would have started to run its course, that the daily revelations of OMG, have you heard the latest, would by now have started to subside. Well, no. Today, which for the record is Thursday, November 17, one day before this pod is published, God knows what might happen between today and tomorrow, uh, we've been blessed with a story from FTX's new CEO, who revealed what he had encountered when he got a first look at the books left behind by his predecessor, the now disgraced Sam Bankman-Fried. Before we go into his comments, let's just note that the new CEO brought in to oversee the wind down of FTC and bankruptcy is John J. Ray III, who is known, among other things, for overseeing the notorious scam company Enron's wind down. That's important context. What did J.J. Ray III, as some are calling him, say? That never in his career had he seen, quote, such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information from compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated and potentially compromised individuals. This situation, he said, is unprecedented. This is a jaw-dropping statement in its own right. But what makes it especially striking is how starkly it stands in contrast to the image that Sam Bankman-Fried had created around him and his company. He was the generous, sophisticated, dedicated leader of a new idea, a positive, progressive face for crypto. Everyone loved him, mostly. Today, we're going to break down that study in contrast and discuss how possibly one side of it fed into the other. To do so, I'm joined by my colleagues at Coindesk, Nicholas Day, who's the managing editor for Global Policy and Regulation, and Tracy Wong, the deputy managing editor for our business team. Sadly, my regular co-host, Sheila Warren, can't join us today, but I'm sure this is going to be a great discussion. So let's bring in Nick and Tracy. Hi, guys. What a week. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Hi, Michael. 
How much sleep have you had collectively? You know, how many hours at this stage uh, you think in the last uh, last week or so? Can you give me? Has it, have you gotten to double digits? Are we up to hours? <laughs> yeah, hours, I'm talking about, not minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, Michael, so so I've been uh, covering this ever since that first story with Alameda's balance sheet. And that was when November 2nd, I think. So it's been two weeks. And I want to say the closest thing I've had to this type of experience is it takes me back to my college days when like during finals period, you have like, you know, three tests and two papers due. And, you know, you're just holed up in the library or in your room and you don't know if it's like daylight or nighttime and you just continuously on your computer just churning stuff out i i think this is probably takes me back to that time <laughs> yeah this is the time when you, you kind of need to be talking to neuroscientists and others who who know what adrenaline is and and how and sort of survive in moments of stress because that's what's kept you going at this stage guys i, I know that i know that for a fact all right listen let's get into the the essence of what we're talking about here i thought maybe tracy you could kick us off like so one of the things I think that's interesting about this image that was created, you know, which, you know, really so remarkably was only just like a month ago that this is the way that he was widely, Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF, was perceived to be. I think it's, it was sort of caught up in a lot of other almost extracurricular activity that he was involved in. So philanthropy and, and political engagement and sort of massive marketing efforts and so forth. So let's talk about that part of it first. I want to sort of Think about the image and the construction of the idea of FTX and SBF that had all these elements to it. Give me, give me your thoughts on some of all that stuff. I think we can start a little bit by just tracing Sam's history. So one thing that has come up in the wake of FTX's collapse is you've, you've seen like crypto OGs like Brian Armstrong and Jesse Powell, who are both founders of you know Coinbase and Kraken. They're very deep believers in crypto and this kind of new system that, you know, they're trying to build. And Sam Bankman-Fried is actually a little bit different than those two in that he never really believed in the mission of crypto. So if we trace back to kind of Sam since his college days, he was this whiz kid at MIT. After graduating, he went to this very prestigious, very secretive quant trading firm on Wall Street called Jane Street. And then after that, he kind of, you know, left Jane Street to go work at this Center for Effective Altruism. And it was this nonprofit. And Sam, there's been profiles written about him that his parents are two Stanford law professors that are hardcore utilitarians. And they really ascribe to this kind of type of philanthropy that basically aims to do the most good. Maybe you could donate, you know, $10 to say a person on the street because you feel bad, but effective altruism really challenges people to think about, you know, where can I donate that $10 such that the impact of that $10 is, you know, maximized? Is it really because this person came up to me on the street and asked for $10? Maybe it's better if I use those $10 to buy, say, you know, the famous example in effective altruism is malaria bed nets, you know, like you can save an actual life rather than just give somebody a meal. And so this is the type of thinking that Sam grew up with. I really believe that he was a true believer in effective altruism. And one way to do that is just to kind of make a lot of money. That way you can donate more of it and become more impactful. And so when he left Jane Street to go intern at the Center for Effective Altruism, he was advised basically by the people at that foundation. They said, Sam, your talent is to, you know, make a lot of money. <laughs> and so they urged him, you're successful on Wall Street. Maybe you can try and strike it big. And then that way you can be more impactful. 
And so he found out that at that time, there were great like arbitrage opportunities between the price of Bitcoin across various exchanges in the world. And that's how he founded Alameda Research. And so it's important to note that, you know, he wasn't a true believer in crypto, like, mm. you know, someone like Brian Armstrong was. And I think actually in a Forbes interview, uh, he, he told the journalist that, you know, if I could be making more money right now trading orange juice futures, I would. That's fascinating. I mean, we could just go have a whole episode on effective altruism and and that way of thinking and what that meant. You're quite right. What an interesting contrast to other people who get into it for this sort of diehard belief in it. And, and really interesting to think about how it would have and might have shaped the way he thought about what he was in it for. I mean, he, he started making his money from arbitrage opportunities that he saw in different prices, right? I mean, that was the beginnings of FTX. And so it's a very sort of like utilitarian, like, this is it. I get some money. This is how to do it. And it doesn't mean it's bad, but it's, it's just an interesting contrast between a true believer. So that was the philanthropy part of it, right? But there's so many other pieces. He built a sort of reputation around that. Obviously, a lot of people in the effective altruism community really globbed onto that and saw him, I suppose, as a leader and somebody that they could they could hold out as a great hope for their movement since he was so rich. But then, you know, he's also out there donating to politicians. Biggest donor, was he not, for the Biden campaign in 2020? Yeah, so we can kind of dissect uh, Sam's philanthropy in maybe two buckets, very directly EA-related causes, and maybe another one that's like second-order causes, like to politicians. And so one of the things that he has been really concerned with uh, due to his effective altruism mindset, is this part of philanthropy subsector within EA called long-termism. And so if one, one thing about effective altruism is that there is a little bit of a measurement problem. Hypothetically, there is something that is really bad to humanity, say like, you know, a pandemic that wipes off everybody. Arguably, the uh, suffering that brings is like immense, infinity. And so if you can kind of donate to causes that eliminate that type of risk by a little bit, then arguably, you know, like that would be the most effective use of your money. Two of the main causes that Sam has donated to right recently is pandemic preparedness and AI research. And so these are two causes that are kind of like tail risks. The chance that a pandemic wipes out all of humanity or that for AI research, you know, the, the computers become smarter than humans and eliminate us. That's kind of reflected in his political giving. So he made a lot of headlines for donating. I believe it was $10 million to a PAC that was funding a Oregon congressional candidate, Eric Flynn. And the main message there was pandemic preparedness. And the mm. other large check that he wrote was actually $500 million to this uh, startup called Anthropic AI. And that is actually a line item on the Financial Times leaked balance sheet. And mm. Anthropic AI is really this kind of AI safety research company that is exploring AI with more guardrails. And it is a competitor, notably, to another AI startup called OpenAI um, that is notably seeded by Elon Musk. And they created the DALI um, imaging yeah. system. And so these two causes, pandemic preparedness and AI research, just really align with Sam Bankman Freed's effective altruism philosophy. And, and let's be clear, I mean, they sound like pretty good causes, right? I know that if I was to look at those in, independently and judge, they, they sound like an important thing to be involved with. So look, it, it sounds that like this is really interesting, complicated element of this. But just to be clear, and those were checks, right? I mean, this is actually cash that he distributed. This isn't like, you know, promises in the future that he was going to be drawing on or 
equity in FTX or FTT tokens or something, right? This was literally money that, that Sam has already dispensed with. I actually am unclear. I don't know yeah. if uh, like what will happen to that, like in the case of Anthropic, what will happen to that 500 million if, you know, it could potentially get clawed back. That's unclear for now. It's also unclear, you know, if customer funds were used to fund political donations, that is still up in the air right now. And but it's right. definitely causing a stir in, in political circles, because also um, Ryan Salami, who is the co-CEO of FTX Digital Markets, he is uh, a big Republican donor. And so both sides have taken kind of FTX money. Right. OK, so it's not necessarily because it's often painted as this sort of money for progressives and Democrats. And, and Nick, I really want to get you in here in a moment, but, but you know, and we'll get that to that little later if we have time on, on, you know, what this look, outlook for regulation means. But just quickly, Tracy, because I do want to get Nick in just to just give us these other side, like with this two-sided story we're trying to tell here. The other piece was not so much Sam and his altruism, but like efforts to boost the image of FTX, which was the marketing game. And that was also a really quite massive, prolific effort. You know, talk through a little bit about some of the things that FTX spent money on to, to associate itself with sports and celebrities, et cetera. FTX ran a huge marketing campaign some of the most notable uh, partnerships is, you know, with Tom Brady, who is arguably one of the, you know, greatest athletes of all time. They bought the naming, uh, naming rights to the Miami Heat basketball stadium. I remember a couple months ago, you know, I was flipping through uh, the New Yorker magazine and I saw a ad campaign. It was FTX Spring Summer 2022 with Giselle Bundchen. And, and Sam in his in his sweatshirt and New Balance sneakers. And so, you know, to say that FTX was overexposed is a little bit of an understatement. And also Sam himself was was quite the media darling. He was on the cover of Fortune magazine as the next, you know, with the headline, is, is Sam Bankman-Free the next Warren Buffett? He was on the cover of the Forbes 400, you know, the list of the 400 richest Americans. And so he really was able to use media to kind of build this cult of personality around him. I think that actually was part of his strategy for uh, dealing with venture capital investors in, in terms of appealing to the public and overall just getting FTX to seem like it was a lot bigger than it actually was. Web3 is magic. In a world where you can buy apes and punks instantly, is real estate the next step? Roofstock OnChain has pioneered the ability to buy homes instantaneously using Web3 technology while opening up new financing options with DeFi. Follow the White Rabbit. Find us at onchain.roofstock.com. That's onchain.roofstock.com. Now, until our very own Ian Allison on November 2, the story that you were alluding to at the beginning of our conversation, Tracy, broke the story about the suspect nature of Alameda Research's balance sheet. This picture of uh, this sophisticated, progressive, altruistic, high-profile, engaging player and his very successful company was very, very widely accepted for what it is. Now, Nick, this statement was also just some interesting back and forth from a Vox journalist and, and Sam Bankman-Fried as well, have really painted a very different picture of, of what actually has been going on, at least within FTX, if not in Sam's own sort of mind, uh, 
just break us down on first mover this morning the show that I, I happen to be hosting for once today you said it was you've never seen a bankruptcy filing like that which came from the new ceo john john j ray today what was it like reading that tell, tell us a bit about it it genuinely was a very stunning document i mean you know the statement that you read out at the beginning of the show where this you know veteran ceo he helmed enron and you know it's waning days he helmed uh i think nortel he's been part of a number of liquidations so he's got a lot of experience under his belt the fact that he says that he has never seen you know a failure a lack of uh you know tools and information as he's seeing at ftx really painting a very dramatic picture but he kind of emphasizes this throughout the filing part of what happens in all bankruptcy filings is you'll see the companies that are filing for bankruptcy say here's what we estimate we have left in terms of assets and liabilities. John Ray III put that into this document, but he said that all the numbers were prepared while Sam Bankman-Fried was running the company and he didn't trust any of them. So he's alleging at best carelessness on a very high level and at worst, you know, potential crimes. He's saying that the financial documents prepared uh, that he has access to might not be or are not accurate or possibly completely inaccurate. Some of the other details that he revealed in this filing, the fact that FTX apparently did not have an accounting department. This is a 30-something billion dollar company once upon a time that handled finances and expenses through a Slack chat. The lack of controls, the lack of separation. He alleged that individuals were using corporate funds for personal property, basically buying houses or land by way of you know the funds that, by the way, based on some of the other allegations, could possibly have been customer funds. He didn't say that outright, but he kind of alleged that. He's questioning whether or not Sam Bankman-Fried has acted appropriately in running the company. He's emphasized multiple times now that Sam Bankman-Fried has stepped down as CEO and no longer speaks for the company, which I don't know if you want to get into it, but the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried himself is still kind of tweeting and talking to reporters and putting out all these public statements saying, all right, you know, my focus is on the customers and I want to see if we can bring all this back and save the company at a time when the company itself officially says no connection with him. There really is just a lot that is very stunning and just completely unprecedented as far as I can tell. You don't see this. We've seen a number of crypto companies file for bankruptcy. We've seen other companies file for bankruptcy over the last couple of years and you know, none of them have come out and said, oh, by the way, our former CEO might have been lying about everything and we have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And then that same CEO to your point is out there on Twitter. I mean, just now, We've become a little bit of a custom, I think, to, to people in the crypto age. And we even have, you know, uh, the most the richest man in the world seemingly quite comfortable with just blurting stuff out for Twitter. So maybe it's a standard that's now of a different, different level. But the amount of trouble that Sam is in right now and to see him in a sort of cavalier way out there with these tweets and so forth just also must be really worrying for anybody who has a stake in all this because it's just the lack of control, right? I mean, talk a little bit about this Vox thing because, again, I think it speaks, it's, it's worth doing because I think it speaks a little bit to what his thinking was. This is this reporter reached out to him and then a very lengthy exchange yesterday filed uh, as a story on Sam talking a little bit about his thinking in terms of what good behavior was and what bad behavior was. And you, you check it out, guys. It's just, it's, it's quite a read. But, you know, thoughts on that, Nick? Yeah, I thought it was definitely remarkable. I mean, across the various messages, he, at various points, you know, he said that a lot of what he did in terms of his DC lobbying and uh, the effective altruism movement might have been PR. He said 
uh, some unflattering things about regulators, despite you know having had a very heavy presence working with regulators. He was even trying to pitch the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission on a plan to allow FTX to directly settle customers' derivatives trades, which would have been a, a novel you know financial tool if it had been approved and was receiving a lot of pushback from TradFi companies. Um, he's been lobbying for legislation. He's been you know, as we mentioned earlier, he donated to lawmakers, which also is going to get him in trouble because now lawmakers from both parties are really furious at him and investigating him. As Tracy mentioned, he spent quite a bit of capital and quite a bit of time building up this you know, very favorable impression, not just in the media, not just in the public, but within policymakers, within uh, regulatory agencies. He's met with White House advisors. He's uh, had pictures taken with uh, lawmakers and policymakers from both sides of the aisle. So, the interview from Vox, I think, was really interesting because he was kind of saying, yeah, all of this was just to try and you know, make myself look better so that I could do whatever I wanted to do. You know, Obviously, he's not going to have a lot of friends left after that, but it's also really remarkable, especially considering he's not a dumb person. He's definitely quite smart, and he has to know that he's getting investigated, that he's you know, being accused of some very serious crimes at this point. So. Um, yeah, you know, honestly, I'm not sure if he was just kind of venting, if he was frustrated, or mm. uh, you know, having a bad time, or if he was genuinely just saying these. And by the way, he did try doing some damage control after that article came out. He went on Twitter and said, "Well, I didn't mean to say f regulators. I think some of these regulators are doing a very good job of a very tough job, and you know, praising certain entities. But it's kind of hard to walk away from you know that kind of thing once it's out." Yeah, no, it, it really, again, yet another remarkable story. But I think the thing we're trying to get to here is just like this stark contrast of the image and then the reality being so, so, so stark. There were certain regulations it had to abide by. It was, it was based in the Bahamas. It, it, you know, FTX was not exactly a free for all, but it's a startup. It wasn't a listed company. So, you know, real questions about the auditor that it had. And yet it had some huge venture capital names as investors in there. I mean, Tracy, like, First of all, who are, who are the bigger names and like, what were they doing? I mean, you know, some of them would have had board seats, right? I mean, wouldn't they be demanding something that should have been a red flag somewhere in all of this? I mean, I, did any of them them know about the kind of revelations you brought to the fore about the, 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 the gang in the Bahamas? I mean, wow. Yeah, I think the venture capitalists who poured money into FTX now have egg on their face. I think there were some rumors that they might be, you know, suing FTX for fraud. Uh, so to your first question about who the investors were, FTX had a completely stacked cap table. Now, some of the names, you know, you had the incumbent top VC firms, Sequoia, Tiger Global, even TradFi players, traditional financial players like BlackRock. They were all investors in FTX. You also had really elite um, crypto native venture capital firms that are deeply familiar with the space, like Paradigm. And you also had pretty elite institutional investors like Tomasek, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Singapore, and the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund. And they were all charmed by the image that Sam Bankman Fried curated for himself. There is a now scrubbed profile. Uh, that used to be on Sequoia's website. It was a profile written about Sam Bankman-Fried, and he really fit the stereotype that venture capitalists love to bet on. He was this male 
a highly educated MIT whiz kid, uh, had a lot of success on Wall Street, and he had his quirks, like he slept on a beanbag and, you know, dressed in his schlubby FTX t-shirt and had this crazy mop of black hair and would play League of Legends when having calls with investors. And I think that really like fed into his mystique and venture capital firms that I, I, I would say, you know, it was almost willful blindness. They kind of thought, okay, you know, this guy has to be legit. And they didn't really question it too much. All right. So Nick, let's just also think about this from, we're going to sort of segue into the regulation part of this conversation now. I think one of the things that's very interesting about what Tracy was just describing is that quirky idea of the Silicon Valley uh, misfit, who's also a genius, has some sort of trampoline in the, uh, the funky uh, offices of the startup in downtown San Francisco and, and you know, is a gamer and, and dresses a bit odd. That's a lovely image, and it's, it's, it's certainly one that you wouldn't want to dispel. I mean, there's, there's real brains that can come. I think there's some great things that have come out of not being so buttoned down and having these rigid ideas about what you have to look like or behave like, right? It's one of the elements of the, the great innovations of the last 20 years is that the spirit and culture of, of that can change. I think what's really challenging <laughs> is that there's a big difference when it comes to money. And the, the connection between wild, crazy, liberally applied rules and uh, innovation uh, around all sorts of other inventions can be fine. But the minute you get money involved, it's a real problem because of the systemic risks associated with it. Because you're not just like selling widgets, fiddle fidget toys or, or anything to somebody. You're actually taking in their money and they're treating you like a bank and they're trusting you and they're building... And on top of that, you're building these networks of association that have, particularly when there's lending and leverage involved, mean that there's a whole domino effect of the responsibilities of that. So is one of the problems that we face in terms of, you know, you've written so much about our regulatory challenges right now, but is one of them a bit of a conceptual problem where we treat this stuff as if it's like regular innovation, when in fact it has all of these interconnected problems and therefore requires something rigid, whether we like it or not. We don't want to kill innovation, but is this part of the problem? And is there anybody thinking about that in particular? It's a really complex question, right? So one thing that's kind of really striking is over the last week or so, you've had a couple regulators, namely the CFTC's Ross and Benham, the chair, and Commissioner Kristen Johnson, almost taking a victory lap because one of the entities under the FTX umbrella, LedgerX, which does business as FTX US derivatives, is not in bankruptcy. It's still solvent. All its funds and customer funds are protected. And these regulators are saying that's because LedgerX is under the CFTC's umbrella. It had to abide by this you know, fairly strict, fairly well-defined regulatory regime. And they're crediting that with LedgerX remaining solvent through this entire mess. So you do have regulators out there saying, you know, see, the system works. If all these other companies in crypto abide by our rules, they'll be fine. They're not going to have to, you know, go through this bankruptcy process or risk the customer funds being misappropriated for whatever purposes. So there is definitely some component of this regulatory regime that policymakers are going to say, yeah, we like it. On the other hand, FTX was kind of really well designed in terms of trying to evade U.S. regulations and EU regulations strictly by setting up in the Bahamas, by frankly engaging in a number of processes that regulators would not have approved of if they were aware of it. So 
it's part of the issue is kind of just how widely spread out FTX is. Part of the issue is that FTX in particular seems to have engaged in behaviors that even if there was a pretty strict regulatory regime for them to abide by, unless there is kind of this constant ongoing scrutiny of what they were doing, this you know activity would have occurred anyway. You would have seen the people who are you know determined to take these funds and customer funds and do whatever. It's possible that a strict regulatory regime wouldn't have stopped them to begin with, but there might have been closer scrutiny. There might have been a better sense of, oh wow, this is something that's happening before it got to the point where it blew up and took down so many other companies or potentially will take down so many other companies, including the hundred different FTX affiliates or subsidiaries that are also currently filing for bankruptcy. Mm. On the other hand, regulators are also saying they've been warning for a while that they're really concerned about contagion fears from crypto into the, let's call it the traditional financial world. And they're saying, hey, look, we were right. This is definitely a thing. But also, there hasn't been any of that contagion so far. All the collateral damage seems to have been limited to crypto companies, which is probably good for the industry in terms of it might, if not blunt the regulatory backlash, at least it's not going to be, wow, you just took down you know, these banks. It's going to be more of a, oh, wow, crypto is the wild west. We're going to focus on like a strictly crypto regime. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, though, like, so it's not a desperate need to shore up the traditional financial system against this threat that's being posed. But on the other hand, I think it's like, look, told you these guys could be trusted. Look how nuts they are, right? And, and so oh, the, yeah. the image aspect of this, and I think that the thing that, I, that those of us who have been covering this for a long time find so frustrating is, is regardless of how often it seems that there's some crazy thing happening in crypto, it is still inappropriate to suggest that that brush should tarnish the entire thing, right? There is a really big, complex group of people doing incredibly different things with multiple different backgrounds. And... A lot of it is profoundly uh, advanced innovation that, that has the potential, I think still have to emphasize the word potential, to have a profound amount of positive impact on the world. But it's so hard to shake off the perception that everybody is a crazy crypto bro. Like, what, is it, what does it look like in Washington now? I mean, it, what are the backers, the, the actual sort of crypto champions, of which there were quite a few on the Hill, how do they look right now? And what are they trying to do to cover them? them? You know, their rear ends, as it were. There's been a very wide range of responses. So on the one hand, you do have quite a few powerful individuals in the Democratic Party who are absolutely furious because Bankman-Fried is being seen as this, you know, this major Democratic backer who uh, sent, I forget how much it was, it was like $40 million or something to various candidates. And now they're saying, okay, well, you know, we didn't ask for him to interfere with the primaries. We didn't really like like obviously they were probably grateful for the money when it came the first time, but now it's become a bit of a headache for them. On the other hand, we're hearing that Republicans are furious because, again, Bankman Free is being painted as this major Democratic backer, so now they have an easy target to go after. Especially now that you know we have a better set. Well, we know that the House is going to be under GOP control, so they will have the authority and the power to start up investigations. We do know that there will be hearings next month, possibly by the House Financial Services Committee. We know that Senators Elizabeth Warren and Dick Durbin have come out and said, okay, we're trying to investigate this. The initial response has definitely been a lot of anger and backlash just because of how entrenched Bankman Free tried to make himself and his company in DC. There's probably regulators with egg under face, right? A couple of months ago, CFTC Chair Ross Venom was out here saying that the proposal to directly settle derivatives by FTX was very innovative and very 
advanced and something worth paying attention to. And uh, now the company has had to ingloriously pull it because its parent company is bankrupt. So there's definitely going to be more of a backlash. On the other hand, we're hearing from some of the pro-crypto lawmakers that, you know, they agree that definitely not a failure of technology. Bitcoin itself is chugging along, doing whatever. The cryptocurrencies at question, for the most part, are fine. They're unaffected. The exceptions mainly seem to be the Solana ecosystem and some of the, you know, serum tokens and things like that, that had heavy backing from Bankman Free and FTX. But this is definitely a corporate governance failure, more of a, you know, human side failure. So you do also have lawmakers such as Representative Tom Emmer, the incoming GOP whip for the upcoming Congress, saying, uh, you know, we're not going to try and kill the entire crypto industry because of this. We're going to focus on, you know, perhaps the bad behaviors of the individuals or of the companies involved. So it's a pretty wide range of responses. It's probably going to take a little bit before we get a firm sense of what the actual consequences might look like. Certainly, we're hearing, interestingly enough, from you know, both sides of the aisle that there's not necessarily a rush to create strict regulatory regimes for crypto because of just FTX. So Senator Sherrod Brown, who chairs the Senate Banking Committee, very powerful Democrat, uh, seems to have come out and said he doesn't want to just bring the hammer down on crypto just because of FTX. So it's going to take a while. We're not going to know too much just yet. And frankly, a lot of it's probably going to depend on what the investigations dig up and whether or not Bank McFreed himself gets hauled in front of Congress for questioning. But it's definitely going to be some kind of, yeah, this might be the impetus to actually get some kind of clarity or more firm guidelines around what crypto activities can occur and how they can occur. All righty, Tracy, I know that uh, we're sort of running tight on typing. So just, to, let's just one last question into you here. One of the things that people are now pointing out is like this whole thou shalt not centralize your operations almost like law that is sort of at the heart of the crypto ideal is once again seen as the central problem right we've got this faith in this opaque uh person and institution that is able to control your money your assets etc etc and and so so i could argue that this is good news for those that really want to distinguish between how you should perhaps regulate those centralized institutions and allow a decentralized regulatory model, you know, that is a blockchain-based smart contract-driven system, DeFi, et cetera, to thrive. Um, obviously, the nuance of that is a huge problem and whether or not, you know, it's able to be distinguished in, in DC is one thing. But what about for crypto people themselves? I mean, we talk a big game, but there's so many people that still end up falling for this hero worship and then pouring all of their assets and hope and trust and faith into these, into these institutions. Do you think the crypto community can, can learn from this? Are we going to see a change in terms of, of just of general behavior? So, so Michael, unfortunately, in, in crypto, people learn lessons through pain. And the hmm. more painful the lesson, it seems like the longer the memory lasts. But still, all in all, I, I think somebody said, you know, uh, crypto has the memory of a goldfish with a concussion. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and it, it is unfortunate, but people learn about what not to do when, when they lose their money. And, and this a lot of this echoes kind of Mt. Gox. You know, that was the hack that really was devastating to the community back then. And I'm sure there were some people in the hack that vowed never, ever to put their coins on an exchange. And as time passes, that lesson becomes less less stark. 
this lesson was certainly very painful and the scale of it was quite large, way bigger than Mt. Gox back then. But am I confident that a couple of years from now, there is not another centralized exchange that absconds with people's funds? Like, um, no, I'm not extremely confident that everybody will heed this lesson. And to your point, Michael, about kind of centralization versus decentralization, I think one trap people fall into is, you know, they they see an actor like Celsius or, or FTX and they're like, ah, the problem is centralization. But they forget to acknowledge that in DeFi, there are also problems. You can be using a DeFi protocol and then one day the North Koreans steal hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I think, you know, both centralized actors and decentralized protocols have come with like different set of risks. And it's really up to you, the individual, to kind of choose which risks are you comfortable with? If you kind of completely reject centralized players and you really want to go the decentralized route, you know, then you got to be really conscious of, do you know how to properly custody your coins? There are, you know, stories we read of people trying to dig up their hard drives, trying to find their old Bitcoins. And also, you know, with, with all the hacks, there are also a lot of risks in DeFi. Yeah, look, I think that the, the memory of a goldfish that's been knocked unconscious is, is, a, is a really great way to close this. But I think at the same time, the beauty of, of podcast and uh, recording for posterity is that people could always come back and listen to this and maybe like take those lessons and be reminded of where we were. It certainly has been an historic moment. And thank you both, therefore, for joining me in this, this tremendous conversation. So Tracy Wang, Nick Day, uh, all the best. Keep on Keep on digging up those stories because it's just going to keep, they're just, there's, there's so many more to come. Uh, that's what it feels like right now. Thanks a lot, guys. And thank you to everybody for listening. Make sure you come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined, hopefully with Sheila here as well. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with announcements by Adby Levine, and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.